0: Hello, welcome to today's episode of Choosing the Numbers, your statistics and sports podcast. Though so today is the movies edition, I'm your host, Joshua Tracy, and I'm Corwin Heller. And the next time you hear this show, we'll have actual stats to discuss. They'll be meaningless because it'll be too soon in, in the baseball season, but we will have actual current stats to discuss like someone who's probably hitting over 500 because we'll be like three games into the season <laughs> but anyway <laughs> uh today is the movie's edition uh we're talking about national treasure platoon and corwin's favorite movie the holy mountain corwin heller are you ready to get started honestly no I
1: that's just what i like to hear. the holy mountain i'm not okay
0: Well, let's start there then, my friend. Uh, The Holy Mountain is a 1973 film out of Mexico. Uh, It was written, directed, and stars Alejandro Hodorowsky, in addition to Horacio Salinas, uh, Zamira Saunders, and some other folk. Uh, It had an estimated budget of $750,000. Corbin, do you want to guess its cumulative worldwide gross?
1: Uh, I gotta be honest, I looked this up
0: previously, so... Oh, how much did you find? Just to see, let's see if our numbers are the same.
1: Oh, like $95,000. All
0: right, this is, yeah, it's pretty close. This is $104,000. Um, so, yeah, Yeah, $10,000. No, Uh, no, this is a flop. Um, this is an investment into the arts.
1: I saw that that John Lennon, like, produced this partially. Like, him and Yoko, like, invested in this film. Really? Yeah. I don't know how true that is, but, like, <clears throat> I saw that and was like, yeah, this seems like something Yoko would, like,
0: be all about. Um, so, Beatles manager Alan Klein helped produce this. Um, after Hodorowski's El Topo. And George and John were both fans and also helped fund, I think, it's the wording is confusing in here, but I think they helped fund El Topo, not this one. Sure. Um, either way, El Topo, a very fun movie, but not quite as fun as this. Um, this is a wild ride. We'll get into it in a, in a second. Um, there is no tagline listed here, which is probably for the best. Um <laughs> It has no major award nominations nor wins. Um, and yeah, Corwin, tell me what you thought of the
1: Holy Mountain. No, I'm going last. I'm doing so. Like, I wrote out like a singular paragraph for this while I was watching it. No actual notes about like anything I liked or didn't like. I just have this one paragraph. I'm going to say it at the end when I give my score, and I just don't. Uh,
0: you got to go first <laughs> all right then let me attempt to tell you what this movie is about um it is an it is a nightmare it is an existential nightmare it is ethereal in the loosest sense um it is um a a, a waking a, a fever dream it is it is a constant what the fuck as it burns through the tape um, it's a wonderful movie. <laughs> I, I, I will genuinely state this. I actually do like this movie. I've shown it to many people. Um, How many liked it? I didn't say anyone liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I, asked, uh, I asked Pete on the phone the other day if he remembered watching this because I told him that I picked this. And the phone went silent and then he just said, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, he was... Pete was very mad when I showed this to him. I
1: need need to cut in to say that I, my mother made a delicious pork loin today with roasted potatoes. And it's, it's my favorite thing she makes, this pork loin. It's my favorite meal to have when she makes it. I get home, long day of work. She tells me she's making it. I'm all excited. I know I have to watch this movie before we record the podcast. So... I'm not in a rush, but I know I need to get it done soon, so I quickly prepare myself a plate. I go in my room. I put on the movie. I'm sitting there eating it, enjoying my food, trying to enjoy this movie. And about halfway through my dinner, I have to watch this guy boil shit. I don't think I need to even go any deeper into why that would upset me. But, my food was ruined.
0: i I do not know why this would upset you. It's a perfectly natural thing to do. Everyone boils their shit. Um, and and so the film follows um a a disheveled, physically resembling Christ-like man um throughout a series of intense, visually, and horribly specific metaphors for various aspects of life genuinely too many to even begin to try to dissect most of them although some of them I'm sure we'll eventually talk about uh along the way he eventually stumbles upon an alchemist living in a tower who promises him uh that he can learn the ability to turn shit into gold um and then they do turn shit into gold uh After that, he asks him if he would like to achieve enlightenment, and then we get introduced to an additional six or seven characters who will all come from different planets and represent different aspects of the bad parts of society that are also looking to abandon their ways and achieve enlightenment. Um, This eventually brings them to the titular Holy Mountain um, to seek that enlightenment, and we'll talk about the ending in a little bit. Um... Man. So the first, well, let's talk about this movie in chunks. Um, and again, for everyone listening at home, you need to watch this if you're going to understand what we're talking about. And honestly, I think you need to watch it because it's just an experience, man. You're not going to watch a movie like this. I'm telling you, this is this is a very, whether you love it or hate it, this is a very singular film experience. You're not going to have anything else like it. Um, that's what I'm saying. Like lo- love it or hate it, you're going to learn a lot about yourself from watching this. Um, so this f-
1: this movie like experience-wise is like what they make Alex watch in A Clockwork Orange. That's what this felt like.
0: I like, honestly I like don't I think that's a horrible comparison. Like I think you're pretty away. accurate. Yeah. So and, and let's let's get into that. So the first third of this film is Again, this—I think this is Horatio Salinas. Uh, He—he's—he's he's looks like Christ, but is a thief and a beggar. And he's like it, the it, the movie starts after the 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 kind of prelude scene of uh, Alejandro Hodorowski shaving some women's hair. Um, the, the movie starts with like him covered in in flies on his face pissing himself um he's not getting getting rocks thrown at him by children it's it's a lot and he navigates his way through um since this film is mexican i'm going to assume some mexican village where it shows a lot of the depravity of society um it shows women being i fucked I don't want to say raped because she seemed like she was enjoying it, but it was some lewd act, whether consensual or not. And uh, then you had like tourists coming up and like taking pictures of it, you know, that's clearly meant to symbolize um, people going to these, harder t- like d- more difficult areas and making light of the situations there strictly by way of tur- by by means of tourism showing how nice of a time they're having when the locals are struggling um it, and so much weirdness um that is meant to in some type of way that I don't think I'm smart enough or well versed enough or weird enough To understand Um, I'm sure all of the images That are shown in this Do have an interpretability I just don't know What all of it could be Like when the And this is just one of my favorite parts for the film Because unless you've seen it You're not going to understand When the Iguana Mayans get conquered By the Spanish frogs I don't know why that's there I certainly understood the parts of it I just said. I don't know why that's there. You know what this actually is
1: leading into like the whole premise of what I wrote. So I mean, you can definitely go back into this, but like I feel like now is a great time to kind of like jump in and just get my rant over with so you can like defend it or whatever, <laughs> argue against it. Go ahead. I don't even care. I understand that having a vision and wanting to use extensive symbolism and vivid injury imagery to portray your message, I understand that. But at the very foundation of any narrative medium is the ability to express your message in a way that the audience will understand. And if the viewer can't even grasp what is occurring in front of them, if you can't watch this movie and understand or even come close to understanding what the symbolism and imagery is supposed to represent, there's nothing tangible to mentally grasp onto. That just makes it a bad movie. You failed as a filmmaker because you can't you can't project your message you can't get anyone to grasp on to the message you're trying to portray and you're you failed you know this is a failure of a film something being subjectively bad (laughs) is always going to be an opinion and you can respect it not enjoying a movie because of taste is fine and that's another understandable opinion if you don't like this movie because of just the repugnant graphics and vivid just mutilation of whatever it is i'm trying to watch that's okay you don't have to like it because of that but not being able to understand what this movie is in almost any capacity you know that's just a objectively poorly made film and i i just can't Get, like there are movies that I like that are just incredibly, you know, focused around symbolism and imagery and the whole premise of show don't tell. But at the core of those movies, you can still understand through context what are tr- what the message is they're trying to portray. There's nothing like that here. You know, the first forty minutes of this film, you don't even come close to anything that you could consider, you know, like a semblance of narrative structure. You don't know what you're watching. You don't know what the movie is going towards. There's no message here. It's just it. It's like it is like that. You know, film that they force Alex to watch in Clockwork Orange. It's just image after image after image of just this outlandish material that is just meant to make you, you know it makes you portray emotions, but not in any positive way. Like it it's made to make you uncomfortable and it's gross. And I just I can't get I can't get anywhere, you know, I can't look at this from any point of view where it's like this is this is art. Like this is a work of art that like This director, you know, this author, like there's a clear, you know, image that they have in their head, and you know, whatever that is. It's just, you know, 40 minutes before you have anything representing like a narrative structure. It's it's disgusting to watch. I hate this film. Um (laughs) you know, it has an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes, 89 by like public voting every reviewer who gave this a positive review has you know their own head 4 feet up their own ass it josh you included but i already knew that i just i cannot stand this movie
0: uh, <sighs> all right rant over <laughs> all right I'm done. so and, i you 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 raise an interesting point and it's actually i was actually going to bring it up but in the opposite sense <laughs> that i think the basic plot of the story is pretty straightforward. There's just so much extra that's in it. It can often distract you from what the baseline plot is. And the base, because the actual plot of this film is there's a guy who's broken Mexico. He finds a wizard. That wizard got other guys together. They climb a mountain and they try to get enlightenment, And that's the movie. There's (laughs) There's <laughs> the, the the metric fuck tons per second in this film of random shit is so colossally high that that can get very muddled. But like, the basic narrative of the story, I think, or the basic plot, I'm not going to say narrative because narrative is different, but the basic plot of the film, I think, stays, is pretty, pretty direct. Like you just said
1: that, you know, getting together with the wizard, getting other people, finding enlightenment on this mountain. I saw all those things. If you asked me before you said that in such a concise way, what the plot of this movie was, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't formulate that sentence because there's, you know, there is all this other, and I will say it garbage in this movie that you can't even keep it straight. It's just so distracting. Maybe that's just because it's the first time I watched it. But at the same time, I, you're watching a film for the first time. You should expect to be able to understand it. I don't
0: know. Oh, don't get me wrong. I'm yeah. I'm not going to sit here and tell you this was easy. You're just stupid. Um, I've seen this movie like five, six times. This is a very challenging film. Um, and it's challenging in part because there's so much to dissect. And there's challenging in part because... It's tough to say what you're trying to dissect versus what is just there to make you feel. Um, this film is less... What One of the things I find so fascinating about this movie every single time I watch it is that this is expressionism to film what, what that is in art, which is like, you can identify probably the base level of what we're getting at here, but it's painted in such a funky way that maybe it gets lost, you know, like maybe it's, it's not that hard to decipher. Like you think of, um, uh, uh, I always forget if it's Edvard Munch or, or, um, that other fucking guy who did the scream. Um, but, but whoever did the fucking scream, you can tell what that is. That's very straightforward. Um, but like, you look at some other pieces of expressionism and there's so much weird color and abstract use of shape that like, if you stare at it long enough, you can probably figure out what the subject was. But oh man, is it challenging! Um, and that's what I find this movie has. And it's so interesting because there's so few movies that really do that. You know, we talked about what a stylized movie is when we talked about Blade Runner 2049 last week, and like this could not be more stylized. I mean, it's insane. And as much as again, it is a confusing, weird. Visceral movie, but god damn it, I respect so much the swing. I respect so much how much is fucking packed into this, and the bits of dissection that I can make out, or the the bits of metaphor that I can decipher, I fucking am fascinated by. I I love like the the um the when you know he when he he gets drunk with the Roman soldiers and. Uh, the, the Jesus character and, and gets knocked out and um, they use his body to make a mold that they then mass produce uh, to sell. And I mean, that's just talking about the commodification of religion um, directly contrary to what, in this film's opinion, Christ would have wanted. And when he wakes up, he's so distraught, he starts destroying all of it. And that's a fascinating thing to, 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 to grapple with. Because it and the character that plays Christ is so not literal Christ, but like figurative Christ, is such an interesting character in of his own right? because he's supposed to be Jesus in a lot of ways. He's clearly cast to look like Jesus. He dresses like Jesus. He's thin and cut like Jesus is. What a hunk. Um, but he's also like a terrible person. And you know, he's a thief. he He pisses himself, like he he's, gets rocks thrown at him by children. Like who who them without sin casting the first stone, but it, it's fascinating because like, I think it's supposed to be that th- th- this, this concept that like we hold up this figure, but at the same time people are flawed and that's part of the beauty of the, idea, of the, of the theology. So there's a lot in it. It's so much. <laughs> it's so much. It's so fucking much. Um, the Hot Nuns is hilarious. I love the Hot Nuns. Um, God damn it. Like, what the fuck? Um, it's, it's, oh man, there's a it's a lot in there. Um, the beginning, I think, is far and away the most challenging part of this. If you can get to the point at which he enters the tower and meets the alchemist, you're you're home free. I think the rest of it's a lot easier to grasp, though not, still not easy. But the beginning is
1: because there's spoken dense.
0: words. Yes, because there are words that are actually used instead of just grunts. Um, and there's no more animal carcasses on crosses being marched through town, um, which is also just a <laughs> oh boy, is it a scene? <laughs> um, so then he well, let, let's skip a let's skip on ahead. He <laughs> met the alchemist. Um, and he begins a training to become what would one would think the new alchemist, like like the the apprentice to the alchemist. Um, he does so for selfish reasons, but it's uh, he still behaves and listens and follows along, and then eventually we get these new characters in that all have representations of the ill parts of society. You have um, the woman from Mars who is commodifying war, you know? And like, that's terrible. That's the problem we still have today. And that's a problem that really only got worse. Like this movie came out in 1973. Like that's a point you'd expect to be made in like the mid eighties after like Iran Contra, like, Mm -hmm. like it's very uh, ahead of, it's way easier to see that. I think now, even though it's not exactly subtle in the film, but like, I think it's way easier to, to get that point based on what has ha- transpired since 1973. But, you know, that is her problem with society. There's the, the militaristic guy from fucking Neptune or some shit who, like, is glorifying um, really the idea of a police state and and conformity and fascism. You know, like, it's all... And all the characters have their own little bit of that that have decided that they want to, for one reason or another, abandon um, that part, of it, abandon the, these these negative traits and negative environments and begin their journey for enlightenment. Starting by burning their money and then burning an effigy of themselves as a way of representing them leaving their former lives behind. Um, and that really is like the entire middle chunk of the movie. How did you feel about that chunk, Corwin?
1: that was definitely the only chunk of the movie that i thought was you know stomachable just because it's like okay i agree with the messages that they're clearly trying to portray um at the same time the way they presented them was still just nearly unbearable Um, mostly because at that point i was so turned off to the entire premise like Part of me wants to say, like, okay, benefit of the doubt. You know, like, it wasn't... The middle part of this movie wasn't that bad. And I'm probably being unfair to it because of the rest of the movie. But at the same time, if I watch 40 minutes of your movie and hate it so much that I don't want to give the rest of it the benefit of the doubt, you kind of deserve that. So I'm not going to give it the benefit of the doubt. It was... It was stuff that I could get behind and I was like, okay, like I'm, this is clearly like what they're trying to portray and whatnot, you know, whether it's, you know, capitalism or, you know, the war state or whatever it may be, you know, there, there's like, what, six, seven, eight of them? Number of uh, There's are. 10
0: all together.
1: Right. The 10 people at the end, that would make sense. Um. But yeah, it it had redeemable qualities, but I still can't say it was enjoyable to
0: watch. All right, moving on. <laughs> um, so that brings us to the final chunk where they actually go to ascend the holy mountain. Um, they do some various ritual kind of things. They have, uh, they all go through a little. Ah, oh, man. The mountain is a weird, weird segment. Um, they they slowly make their way up the mountain. Um, each one of them has a vision that represents their like worst fears. Um, some of them are pretty straightforward, like a or, or their obsessions, I should say. Um, the 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 negative things that they're trying to suppress by seeking enlightenment. Like the easy one is the guy getting showered with gold coins. Like obviously he's trying to avoid that part of him otherwise he wouldn't be on this journey uh, the most difficult one is the guy getting sprayed in the mouth by a man with uh, 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 cheetah titties I um, can't explain that to you was, why that was That, that was the
1: only that was the only laugh this movie got out of me and I don't think it was trying maybe it was I don't care I laughed at those cheetah titties
0: I could not tell I, you I couldn't even guess as to what that was an attempt at. I'm so happy it's there, but man, I... Oh, wow, I couldn't even fucking begin to to make an attempt. Um, I was so
1: repulsed by the, like, old man with half a beard with, like, his dick hanging out and some big old titties. And then it just cuts to this guy getting fucking... Uh he he got golden shower he got blasted in the face with some fucking cheetahs just coming all over him and i yeah i don't know that may have been the high point of the movie
0: i mean it's a great scene yeah. um
1: i've really wanted to just like have a picture of like luke from the last jedi just like with the glass of milk just like ah, yeah drink up um but uh, yeah, that's a future beam that nobody will get. That I'll make. Regardless. There you go. Yeah.
0: Now you're you're part of a club, the club that of people who have seen this movie. A club um, that I don't want to be in. <laughs> well, too fucking late. Yeah. Uh, they 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 also have this um this bar scene. That I I is the <laughs> you're gonna hate my sentence or what I'm about to say. I think it's the only really weak part of the film. This. <laughs> This detraction over to, to, to the bar. Um, it's the only part I find to be relatively heavy-handed. Heavy I think the rest of this movie is phenomenal. <laughs> um, but anyway, they continue their ascension. And when they right before they get to where they're trying to be, um, kind of the top of the mountain, though not quite, um, where, where, where the Eternals are so that they can also gain um, immortality as well as enlightenment. Um, the the alchemist, Alejandro Hodorowski, pulls our, our Christ-like character to the side and says, you, you don't go up with us. You, um, the, this woman that has been following him along, I think she was originally one of the hot nuns, um, as well as, um, I, think she's al- I think she's also a prostitute, um, but there's a lot that's done in this film, so it's very easy to forget details. Um, as well as a, a chimp, have been following him around kind of since uh they encountered each other on the streets of the uh anarcho or anarchist riddled beginning of this film. And Alejandro Modoraski pulls Christ to the side and was like, You don't go up with us. You have a woman here who loves you. You should go live a life with her and be happy. Um and then he left with the prostitute and the monkey um, to go live a better life. And this leads us to the end of the film where the gang that remains, the 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 other eight people, not counting Christ and, and the alchemist, uh, finish ascending the mountain. They see a table with 10 people around it that uh, are the immortals. And they go up to the table and they pull these sheets off of these immortals. Just to find that they're uh, dummies. They're basically mannequins. They're not real. And they all are uh, laugh and they throw the, the dummies on the table and they pull the hood off of one of them. And it turns out, ba ba, it's Alejandro Hodorowski. He was there the whole time. Um, and he laughs and makes some like, moose ears. And it's a real big, real big uh, joke. Um, and then they all sit down at the table. And Alejandro Hodorowski to- to- talks to them about how. He's like, you know, you came here to become immortal, and you came here to receive enlightenment, and here you are at the end of your journey, uh no more mortal or immortal than you were before. Uh sorry, e- or even even more human, some some shit like that. The basic point of it because uh a lot of words is um You didn't need immortality What you needed was to get a better understanding Of what it meant to be a human What you needed was a better understanding Of what it meant to be mortal To, to, to be alive And to, be, to live within reality um, Instead of achieving Instead of chasing fantasy And then he continues to say But this isn't even reality This is a movie um, And then he Issues my favorite line of the film Zoom back camera And then the film breaks the fourth wall with Alejandro Hodorowski addressing the audience um, and talking about what reality really is and how these journeymen and women need to continue their journey to seek reality and to achieve happiness with their mortality and happiness within themselves as people and that it can't be done within the confines of a film. It has to be done in the real world, which... um, and then they just start walking away, uh, away from the camera crew and the other cast members who were not in the scene that are standing by as one would on the film set. Uh, and the movie ends. So what'd you think of the ending?
1: Like I said, your head is four feet up your own ass. Just- <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the movie ended with the ending the way it was. It was like, it is this like a, deeper Inception-level Monty Python film, and, like, John Cleese is going to walk out, and is like, ha, gotcha! And then they didn't, and I was just like, wow, fuck that. (laughs) And then I hopped on and started talking to you. Oh, god, Uh, I
0: I love this ending.
1: I refuse to watch movies that I don't enjoy watching. Like, if I don't enjoy a movie, I'll turn it off. You know, we talked about this with Ikiru. Ikiru, I forget how you pronounce it. Um, Ikiru. Ikiru. I, you know, the last time I watched through a movie that I truly hated was The Rise of Skywalker because it's Star Wars. And I, I needed to know how it ended because there's just like a higher power controlling me when it comes to Star Wars. I sat through this so I wouldn't have to have that talk of, wow, couldn't finish the movie you Josh. I'm such a bad co-host, uh, and so I wouldn't have to give out another zero. Um, so I'm going to give this half a star instead um, because while the messages at the center part of the movie I enjoyed, everything else about this made me hate watching it so much i i can't i just i i can't i can't period hard stop i can't and that i yeah uh yeah that's those are my thoughts
0: well i uh i i love the ending of this movie (laughs) I love the message. I think it's phenomenal. I'm being also completely serious, even though I'm laughing. Um, That's that's what's
1: so great about this podcast is how much you and I love some of the same movies and how polar opposite we are in others. So please go ahead. Uh, uh,
0: Again, man, like you're just, you're not going to find a movie like this. It's, It's so incredibly singular in what it's doing, at least in my experience of watching weird shit. This is the weirdest and the best done because you watch it and you might not know what's happening, but I can tell you for a fact they meant for it to happen. Um, And that intention, that level of intention, like it's not being like, we've all watched horror movies. Where it's like, uh, you know, they, they're they trying really hard to be scary, and instead it just comes off as kind of lame. You know, like, I can't tell you how many horror movies i put on Netflix and then turned off because, like, they just, like, threw a bucket of blood on something and thought that'd make it scary, and it's just not. Or they tried to make the bad guy extra scary, but it just looks like a shit cosplay job at, like, an 80s metal show, like, and it just, it's not intimidating, just looks kind of sad. Like, when you force it, you know. And again, i and there's a lot that goes on in this. It's really fucking weird. A lot of it isn't going to make sense to ninety nine percent of people who watched it myself included Um but I, I can also tell it's genuine and it doesn't feel forced. It feels like there is an underlying message to all of it. We might not just ever know what the fuck what the fuck it was. um. And God damn it, I appreciate that so much. Uh, I think the colors in this film are phenomenal. I, I found it to be, uh, as a palette, exceedingly pleasurable to watch. Um, and again, I love this fucking ending. Um, it is moderately up its own ass. I will, I will concede partially to that, but I still fucking love it. Um, and I continue enjoying uh, finding more things about it that I can understand upon each generously spaced out viewing um Corin asked me if he should be high when he watches this I recommend you're not because it will not be fun
1: Oh, I you, couldn't imagine watching you this will not enjoy the this of anything
0: please like, do not watch this high
1: it's 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 pretty unbearable to watch sober I couldn't imagine being anything but because it would be tough. I mean, imagine
0: like every ounce of every frame of this is metaphor by way of nightmare. And like, it's not going to be fun if you do this while inebriated in the slightest. It's, oh. it's going to be bad. Uh, but I just love this movie. <laughs> I do not watch it frequently because I cannot watch it frequently. But I. I'm so enamored by the fact that this got that this is made like with good production value. Like again, weird and confusing, but they also this film had a had a budget like it and it showed. There there was money put behind this. Um anyway, I'm I'm going to give it a fucking 4, man. Like this is this is this is on in its own realm of, of 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 situation here, guy. Like this is a wild and wacky picture. Um and it's 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 just its own deal. And I don't have a good space to put it in. I can't put it in drama, can't put it in comedy, uh, I, I can't put it in mystery thriller. So that means it gets to be in its own genre that gets to be weighted against its own deal, and it's the only one there. <laughs> and I'm gonna give it four stars
1: this makes the room look like fucking apocalypse now and i just half a star uh, i'm sticking with it i just josh i will always respect your opinion of movies because you are significantly more versed um but i can still hate you for liking this so <laughs> will.
0: will you ever watch this again
1: no way in hell <laughs> So like, like ten... I, I now have this movie downloaded on my computer. I might on a list. delete it from existence just to like it'll save me a gig of space on like one of like multiple terabyte drives and might as well because it's never getting used otherwise. Ooh.
0: Um I would like to point out that The two women in the beginning getting their head shaved um, Were not actresses They just wanted to have A religious experience and just kind of Volunteered to be in this Sure And that's wonderful Uh, Honestly why not Anyway um, Yeah so that was fun I am so glad you watched this And now have it in your head forever And what do you say we decompress a little bit with National Treasure
1: Oh I was going to say we got to follow this up With
0: National Treasure Oh, and we go from the I'm wild sorry.
1: and we need to talk about it. I love this movie.
0: <laughs> we go from the wild and wacky uh, quest for enlightenment to the crazy and complicated uh, search for gold and the theft of the Declaration of Independence 2004's national treasure directed by John Turtletop, written by Jim Coof, Cormac Wibberly, Wow, these names are made up. And four more people? How many people wrote this fucking thing? Jesus. I uh, Marianne they're... Riverley, Jim Koof again, Orin Aviv, and Charles Cigars. So five people wrote this. That's eh, it's too many people. It's sure
1: just all stage names for Nick Cage. He wrote this movie
0: by himself and just used them all. He certainly might as well have. It stars Nick Cage, Diane Kruger, and Justin Bartha, as well as appearances from Sean Bean and, and uh, John Voight and Harvey Keitel and Christopher Plummer. So many good names in this film. Um, Fortunately, John Voight's car, not in it. Uh, other, The other John Voight's car is in it, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, dentist John Voight's car is in this film. Um, it had an estimated budget of $100 million. Cumulative worldwide gross... Okay. Yes, it had an estimated budget of $100 million. What? In 2004.
1: Are you fucking joking? A hundred? On what?
0: <laughs>
1: There's no sense. up a boat. That couldn't have cost $50 million. Where'd the other 50 go to? What?
0: Yep. Uh, which is about one hundred thirty-three million dollars in uh, today's money. So, yeah, yep, hundred million dollar budget. That's the estimate. I love it. Uh, <laughs> opening weekend was thirty-five million, so it it wasn't successful opening weekend, but cumulative worldwide gross uh thirty three hundred forty-seven million. Um, so, definitely a success in that respect. Uh, so it tripled its investment. So, yeah, pretty successful. Um, Let's find a tagline. I want to see a tagline in this. Uh, You ready? Yeah. The clues are right in front of your eyes. Are you kidding me?
1: All the shit we deal with, we finally watch a Nick Cage movie, and that's the tagline that they give us?
0: You. I'm upset. I know. Um, Corwin. Oh, it has uh, no major wins or nominations. Corwin, what do you think? Of national treasure
1: I mean uh, there's no need to like beat around the bush this is like the ultimate guilty pleasure movie like by all means this shouldn't be considered like no I'm I'm, I I don't want to like try and look at this from like a high brow it's like oh it's so bad it's good or whatever it's like this movie is just a movie that accepts what it is and completely you know pushes towards those strengths. You know, yeah, yeah, half the clues don't make any sense or like are completely implausible. You don't care. It's a fun history mystery thriller puzzle that like you're just enjoying the ride and I I love it. It's like one of the best guilty pleasure movies ever.
0: I wholeheartedly agree. Um this film I would introduce the concept of this film as like, uh, look, man, do you want to see Nick Cage running around the Northeast chasing, um, presidential lies in search of gold for no reason? This is your movie. It is nonstop. It doesn't, it doesn't pause long enough in one particular clue for you to go. Now hold on a moment. Mm-hmm. It just is like, nope. We have accepted the fact that this is reality. Um, everyone's a fr- everyone's a Freemason. Everyone's in the Illuminati. Um, uh, the Library of Alexandria people made stuff come out of it and then brought it to the U.S. for no reason. Um, don't even think about it. Here we go. It's going to be a blast. Uh, and man, it it fucking goes right. <laughs>
1: Oh yeah. Like I almost always have to like force myself to like avoid like overthinking it. And it's like, just enjoy it. You know, like, yeah, obviously it's not going to work. Just stop focusing on it. It's a movie. Just enjoy it. At no point, like I noticed those things at no point did they ever bother me because you just, it's Nick Cage and he just relaxes you from expectations. You know, it, you watch a Nick Cage movie, you know exactly what it's going to be, and you don't care, you know, unless it's Mandy or something, you're just there for a good time.
0: I will say his performance in this film, while one of his more muted performances, um is still absolutely confounding at some points.
1: Oh yeah, Nick Cage pretending to be cool or like trying to be cool is peak Nick Cage.
0: Like I and, and I haven't seen this movie in, like, a while, you know? Um, I probably haven't... I, I think the last time I saw it was probably in college, like, early college, so it's probably been, like, six, seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene in the... Um, at, like, the banquet when he's going to... Right before he steals the declaration, like, like that dinner party thing. Yeah. And he's giving that, like, toast, and he's, like, staring so intently at Diane Kruger. Um, I, <laughs> I looked at... Cal and I was like you know he's not I fucking her he's I beating the shit out of her like he looks furious like I it was such a weird scene because he's definitely supposed to be kind of flirtatious but it looks like he's getting ready to murder her like and then she like smiles it off because it's supposed to be like flirtatious but he looks like he's about to fucking kill her
1: yeah it's one of those things where like Nick Cage like I don't think he has like he's such a expressive actor but i don't honestly know if he like has full control over like what emotions he has when he's acting because it's kind of all over the place um kind of yeah like it's definitely not something where it's like oh like he's just going out there doing whatever but like there are definite times where it's like what's he going for Like, what, like, this just seems so out of what anyone would expect out of this situation. Like, what do you, like, what does he think is going on? Like, whether he's super muted during a time when, you know, he should be freaking the fuck out. Like, when he's on the Charlotte and it's about to explode, he's cool, calm, and collected. And then, you know, he's freaking out when it's like, dude, what the hell are you going on about? Like. Just he's at 100 when everyone else is at like a, a
0: 30 or a 40. Um, well, they they make his backstory so fucking bizarre. Like, they mentioned that he was in uh, an ROTC program in college, and that yeah, I think was he was in the Navy, he, Navy, and that he was, was a diver. diver. Yeah, and I swear to God, they brought that up just because he dove in one single scene, which was just a pencil dive. Um that anybody could have done um and i don't even mean that like i mean straight up he it was not a huge jump and he just made his legs straight it wasn't very complicated yeah um and like they felt the need to give him exposition for that which was hilarious um and i assume that they also put that in there to make some of his antics seem less unrealistic but they also do that after he like survives the explosion of the charlotte which like at that point i'm just assuming he's indestructible anyway so you don't even need to tell me that he has a background in the military because it doesn't matter anymore
1: yeah like that's just that they open the movie with that and it's just like that's not even close like that's so far outside of reality the rest of the movie just seems super realistic comparatively you know
0: well, so I want to talk about the beginning a little bit, though, because one thing, uh, Matt was here to watch the movie with Cal and I, and the the three of us were talking.
1: Thanks for the invite, Josh.
0: You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the discovery of the Charlotte seems like a colossal fucking deal. Like, Sean Bean could have made a lot of money off of that. Oh, yeah. Like,
1: That's a huge discovery.
0: That's what I'm saying. Like, oh my God, that's, dude, that's enormous. That's such a big find. Like, like, you could have collected all that money and then been like, all right, in like six months after all this is settled and I we get some extra funds for the, tr- for the journey, we can keep going in New York to do whatever the next step is. And instead he was like, fuck you, I'm going to murder you. And then Nick Cage was like, no, fuck you, I'm going to blow it up. And <laughs> it's like, what? What are we doing? Like two
1: things. One, they open like three barrels in that entire ship. And like, let alone the fact that like they find it immediately. And it's just like, oh, we found it. (laughs) What else? Like, is there just the like. Like, are you just assuming that there's nothing else on this ship of any importance? Like, oh, hey, we have this mysterious pipe. That's also a puzzle piece. Nah, that's it. That's all we had on the ship. Nothing else is going on. The clue definitely has nothing else going with it. Like in a movie, like if there was a second piece, of course they would have, you know, found it. But like if this was real life, it's like you would have combed over every inch of that ship, making sure you found everything you would have needed before you left, you know, this fucking glacier that would be a bitch and a half to get back to.
0: No, nah, like, like, come on, Corbin. You know that the Knights Templar, Illuminati, Freemasons, and U.S. presidents are too smart to put two clues on the same boat. Come on. And, and like,
1: wh- they're in this huge rush. Like, there's in this race against each other to find this. It's been sitting there for, like, 250 years. Is it going anywhere? Like, sure, they're racing against each other. But, like... That only comes from them rushing out of there and, like, whatever.
0: And I also like, love, throughout the course of this film, how much work Nick Cage and his ilk do. And then Sean Bean gets, like, a fraction of their clue and is like, oh, yeah, I know where that is. I know what, I know what we're doing now.
1: Like, their entire strategy is, like, All right, we need to figure out enough to put us in the right city. And then we'll just find them and we're good to go and that's how this movie goes. Oh, yeah. Um but at, at the same time, Josh, when you were watching it, did you care about that in any capacity?
0: Um I only cared this time because I was taking notes and needed things to say. But I didn't actually care. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the one note I have here that isn't doesn't matter a lot, but I I just can't help do the British not know about the treasure? Uh, because didn't they know. say so the beginning explanation exposition with Christopher Plummer, which I also have written down here, that that is a wild scene and really is its own movie. Um, I also I turned to Matt while we were watching the the beginning part, and I was like he he came up like they weren't he wasn't planning this story. He found his grandson in the attic and was like, "This kid." Wants to find out about treasure. <laughs> like, he, he found his grandson up in the attic, didn't ask him what he was looking for. <laughs> didn't, wasn't like, hey, de- hey, Nick, it's uh, it's one o'clock in the morning during a storm. Are you okay? He was like, you want to hear about how your granddad drove a president to Washington and died too soon and found out about buried treasure?
1: <laughs> what. Yeah. If I was in this scenario, I'd be like, holy shit, Granddad's got... He's got fucking dementia. Like, has nobody else noticed this over the past couple of years? Like,
0: are you serious? The shit he just came up with? I, I I, know. And and so that then brought me to the question of um, how did Nick Cage get Sean Bean on board with this? Like, the guy's not American, oh, which means he, like, f- had to go find an international investor who like isn't familiar with US history, which is going to make the rest of this a real fucking leap. Uh, <laughs> because did this you, is all about US history.
1: Did you watch the same movie? He convinced the curator of like the National Archives to come along on a treasure hunt with the Declaration of Independence just slung over their shoulder the whole time. He could convince yep. anyone of anything. It,
0: he did not convince her. He stole the declaration and was like, I am not giving it back to you. And then she said, well, then I'm coming with you. And then he said, well, all right, you're kind of hot. So come along board, baby. Come on, um, baby. Bang. Also, oh, God, I know we're jumping around a lot. But the fact okay. I lost my shit when Nick Cage said we can instead of doing it in whatever room, we'll, we'll, we can try to steal it from the preservation room because there's less security. And I lost my fucking mind at that because how the fuck do you know the security level of the preservation room on a whim like that? How, how do you know?
1: Did you you not see him like read that article? I mean, come on. Clearly they have their like surveillance patterns and security systems and all the blind spots clearly laid out in
0: this like GQ article. Come on, That's man. the thing, it's like they're in like the National Archives looking for blueprints. Like the blueprints aren't gonna be like fucking hundred years old and like they're gonna include the goddamn security layout. <laughs> Josh, what the- oh my god. Josh. Who cares?
1: Like I, I get know, it. I'm just it's saying. our job with this podcast to do this kind of thing. But it's Nick Cage. Who cares? It's the answer to every complaint.
0: cares it's a great movie which which brings me to my next point which was an earlier point but i got sidetracked he (laughs) switches from like sean bean you cannot steal the declaration that's just too far man to i need to steal the declaration he makes that change in a fucking instant like seriously the second the the charlotte explodes which was the whole reason like like the The attempted murder, the whole reason that happened was because Nick Cage wouldn't steal the declaration. And then once he found out that Sean, once we determined that Sean Bean was going to steal it, Nick Cage was like, I'm going to steal it first. Oh my God. I never thought of
1: that. This entire thing could have been avoided if he was just like, okay, but we got to play by my rules. And I'm sure Sean Bean would have been like, yeah, clearly you've got this figured out. Like, sure. Help out.
0: I'm also I must oh, say I'm also
1: movie for me. I'm also oh, no. really
0: disappointed that when Sean Bean saw Nick Cage with the Declaration of Independence, he wasn't like, "You're alive? How are you alive? Because last he saw Nick Cage, he got blown the fuck up in a ship in the Arctic. Uh, <laughs> like, there's no that, re- like... there's no reason to assume this man would have lived. I'm not saying it had to be a big deal, but like, Sean Bean was just like... Oh, damn, he beat us to it. He wasn't even like, how are you in the existence? Uh, I, there's like
1: one moment where he's like in shock and like frozen while like his buddy's just like, I'm going to shoot that guy while holding the Declaration of Independence. And then he snaps back into it. I'll accept it. You know, for everything else we forgive with this, like that one, I think that one is one of the more easily explainable. Him not dying in this explosion, absolutely wild. Sean Bean's reaction, I get it. I kind of get it.
0: Oh, man, I don't know. I think I really think it should have been acknowledged in even like a very minor way because, again, like, dude fucking basically murdered you in the arctic and you got out alive yeah. he sh- he should be surprised because if we're being honest here nikki boy you shouldn't have lived
1: i'm surprised like honestly surprised knowing nick cage and his characters that part of this you know process of stealing the declaration from the preservation room wasn't like leaving a note for him or like setting up a surprise for like him to walk in and it's just like hello it's me in just some grand gesture of something
0: um but yeah you know that, that would have been fun um i would also like love like to say that i love the reason that the declaration was in the preservation room because they made the the box, in the encasing for the declaration too hot, so they basically brought the declaration in for a checkup. (laughs) See, I (laughs) kind of saw that like,
1: like, okay, he's pointing the laser at the heat sensor. It's clearly showing that it's like a billion degrees, whatever temperature lasers are at. I assume Mm -hmm. it's a billion. And they're like, wow, the sensors on this are broken. They're all fucked up. We should replace them. And they were just replacing the stuff in the case and just I guess never got around to it they took it out and then just kind of left it there
0: but whatever that, that's what I'm saying like, it was so confusing because they just brought it downstairs and they were like the censor's too hot and I, I look at Kel and I'm like yeah the declaration of independence is sick <laughs> it caught the cold the it's old lady like,
1: could have spread corona to the declaration
0: I might as fucking well have. I wouldn't be surprised if Nick Cage was the first confirmed coronavirus victim, or uh, or patient zero for the U.S., I should say. Um, I would also like to very quickly double back to Nick Cage, his character. Um, so you're telling me that Nicolas Cage in this film, who is, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to say 35 in this movie? Does that sound about right? Sure. Why not? Like, you know, he's he's young-ish but like middle-aged so he's actually 40 when the film got made but for all intents and purposes we'll say 35 so let's assume he went to college which he did um he got a degree in uh fucking like American studies or some shit uh so and then he went into the the Navy uh for I don't know let's say five fucking years so that gets him out of the Navy before he turns 30 um What did he do? How long have they been on the hunt? Like, how... I want to know how he got here. You think this dude had some free time
1: after, like, classes on, like, a Thursday afternoon and, like, had the choice between, like, playing some video games, uh, getting high on the quad, or, like, hunting for treasure? Yeah, obviously, Nick Cage in this movie, of all people, was, like out in the library, digging up clues to like, find this thing, you know, every waking second away from his studies was definitely towards
0: this. I just, I, I usually don't give a shit about the, before the film begins type of stuff. And I'm usually glad when we don't get it because it can often muddle things up. But think about how wild the beginning of this film is that Nick Cage is bringing an investor along, which also why is Sean Bean coming along? Think
1: about I, think I about assume, I assume he invested a significant amount of money in this endeavor. And part of that was like, Yeah, I'm gonna be the one to help find the treasure and you know be a part of this discovery. Why not?
0: Dude, no, if, no. If no, you no, are putting no, that much money into stop, it. Why stop. Not? Stop. Stop. They committed so many felonies. They committed, they, there was, if you wanted to say that they were going to find the, the treasure and then they were going to call Sean Bean down to where they found it so that Sean Bean could be the one to call it in to get credit, fine. But Sean Bean was spearheading the operation to steal the Declaration of Independence as a foreign diplomat in the United States. As a very well, he had so much to lose and you, did not need to be there.
1: Josh, are you surprised by rich people just not giving a shit about legal consequences? Are you kidding me?
0: I'm just saying, man. In, hint, hint, you, rich people should hire other people to do the dirty work. You hire other people to commit the felonies so that you can just sit back, let your henchmen get fucked up by creaky stairs. And collect all the money. There was no reason for you to be the one committing the felonies.
1: Josh. Who cares? I do. Stop thinking about it. Don't think about Me, it. Don't think I about care. it. Don't think oh, about man. it. Oh man. I do I do want to say though, back to the topic of uh, the <laughs> Nick Cage's character. Um his name's like Ben, right? Ben something? Yeah, frankly. I don't even remember. It's Nick Cage. <laughs> like you know how, like, you watch some actors and like you disappear into their roles. Like, Daniel Day Lewis is never Daniel Day Lewis; it's always Abraham Lincoln or uh, Daniel Plainview, whatever.
0: Oh, it actually is Ben. For, it's Benjamin Franklin Gates. Sorry, continue. Makes sense.
1: Uh, Nick Nick Cage is always Nick Cage. Yeah. Um, but if his only goal was to steal the Declaration of Independence to keep it safe. Because he, you know, you don't know what's going to happen if Sean Bean gets it. Why doesn't he just like turn it in? Hey, FBI, here's the Declaration of Independence. You're welcome, assholes. I tipped you off about this already. I warned you. Here you go. Give me a fucking reward or whatever. I don't care. No, he fucking goes out. He's like, all right, well, I stole it. Now I'm going to go get the treasure for myself. It's all greed and ego. <laughs> He acts like he's this noble hotshot with the purest of intentions. He just wants the money and the and he doesn't even want the money all that much. He just wants the name recognition.
0: The other thing that, speaking of the money, um, because, you know, the end of this movie that Riley is complaining about only getting a half of 1% because they took a 1% finder's fee. Um, but didn't they also say they donated all the stuff to a museum? Yeah. You don't get a finder's fee if you donate it all to a museum. And also like even if you I'm did sure there was
1: like some no, Hold on,
0: hold on, hold on. Even if you did, the museum is not going to give you I mean you're not going to pull up to the museum with like countless untold riches and have the museum be like, "Oh yeah, you want like we this looks like about 6 billion dollars. You want like 10% of that just like cash on hand?" Yeah, dude. Like they're not gonna that's not how it works. Think about it. Like, though, there was a bunch of artists, The artifacts real end, the real end of this movie is that they can How can you, how can you look
1: Hazel. at that giant room of gold and say, "All right, those like fucking gold coins or whatever"? Yeah, donate a handful to a museum. They only need like one or two. Sell the fucking rest. They're gold coins. You don't need to donate everything. Might I say though, the, the funniest money. part. Donate again. the important stuff. What's up?
0: Again, I know I'm jumping all around on this film, um, but they did too, so it doesn't it doesn't matter. Um, the funniest part of them finding the treasure was uh, Diane Kruger's character looking, not opening, looking at some dusty old scrolls and going, scrolls the from the library of Alexandria! And we all <laughs> look at each other like, how do you know?
1: Uh, the fact that it's immediately followed up by like, I want to say it's like Avery going up to this like King Tut statue. And just like a giant green man with a goatee. I assume that's important. And then just hugging it. It's like, yes, clearly they understand what's going on in the scene. And like, they have her saying that to like, Oh wow, this is important. And it's like
0: fucking who gives a shit, man? Giant
1: green dude. They found the treasure. Who cares?
0: Dude, Riley is the best part of this movie by far. Oh, yeah, you're phenomenal! Like this movie is so not serious, and he just embodies that so perfectly. Oh, like when he takes a moment, of which there are precious few minutes, um, to explain to them that daylight savings had a start time, like had a yeah. had a date that it was enacted, and it wasn't seventeen seventy fucking six. It was fucking hilarious.
1: I I love you know we're not reviewing the second movie, the sequel. Um, Equally as fun. Not yet. uh, They're making a third. um, The fact that they immediately start off the second movie with like him like getting his car impounded and just like losing everything is like this is right. This is equilibrium in the world. Like. I I feel bad because Riley's such a great character, but, like, you knew there was no way he was holding out to that money.
0: Well, that's... I I find that to be so hard to believe, because think... All right, so... Nick Cage is unraveled upon this venture because it's his entire lineage's life's work. Sean Bean is enwrapped in this adventure because... He wants the money, um, and then all of his buddies are getting paid to be there, so that makes sense. But Riley has seemingly no stake in this outside of the money as well. He's just, I I guess he was brought along by Nick Cage, which is why his, his allegiance is more so with him. So it seems really weird that Riley would end up losing all of it when he spent conceivably, like, he risked. By far the most to get the money. So, anyway, yeah, that yeah, Josh. Who cares? They found the treasure. There's a map
1: on the back of the Declaration of Independence that you can only see through 3D glasses. All right. There's
0: the, and there's a bunch of numbers that you can only see with lemon juice and hair dryers. There's a
1: clue on Independence Hall in Philadelphia that was created in 1776 that you can only see at a certain time on a certain day, which they don't even go into because the sun moves around the earth. That's right. I said it. And they just happen to show up at the exact perfect day for, the, for it to fall perfectly right on top of it.
0: And then it was they, so funny if they
1: showed up any earlier they would have just assumed that the daylight savings thing like wasn't a thing and they would couldn't have found it. They showed up ex- on the exact perfect day within like the 1 hour, we'll say 30 minutes because of, you know, figuring it out and you know, making sure they got there in time, a 30 minute window on the only day during the year where that clue could have been found and they just Happened to fall ass first into it.
0: My favorite part about the... the, You're talking about the brick, right? I'm assuming. Okay. My favorite part about the fucking brick is that they clearly, like, while filming this, forgot or, like, started the shoot late because by the time... Because when Nick Cage gets down there, the shadow is, like... It's not even remotely close to pointing at the brick that he needs to pull out. Like, it's not even... It's not even a little bit close. It's well past where it was supposed to have been. Like... (laughs) Like, it really just hammers home the point none of this fucking mattered. Oh,
1: absolutely. Like,
0: as long as Nick Cage knew enough to go down onto that roof and go look at those bricks to find the one with the Freemason symbols on it... He'd have been fine. Like, like mm-hmm. the fact that... Like, they could have missed Daylight Savings, that, that whole part of it. They could have shown up a fucking hour and a half late. As long as the shadow was still cast on that fucking wall, they'd have found the clue, no fucking problem.
1: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Even if the shadow wasn't there, even if, like, the sun disappeared, you could, like, do the math. And yeah, that's wiped. the
0: other thing. The, the, the sun only faces... Um, East and West. (laughs) So so in theory, you could say, all right, well, 2, whatever it was, uh, 2.30, 2.22, whatever. Um, Well, that's the afternoon. So so chances are the sun is on the west part of the the sky, which means the shadows are casting east. So let's just uh, look that way. (laughs) Yeah,
1: look that way. Okay, there's clearly (laughs) a place there where this would fall. We could do some basic fucking trigonometry you know, Pythagorean's theorem, okay, we know exactly where it's going to be. And even if you don't figure it out, you can just look down there and be like, oh, it's the one with the logo on it. Nice.
0: And also, I mean, not that I've ever tried to remove a single brick (laughs) from a brick wall. There's no way your fucking, like, handyman uh, Swiss army knife (laughs) is going to be able to just chip away at cement.
1: No chance in hell.
0: I love this movie.
1: Oh, it's perfect. It's so fucking dumb.
0: Oh my Maybe god! Not five out
1: of five, but close.
0: Six out of six. I mean, my god.
1: Uh, I have
0: six. more notes. They don't fucking matter. Um, what do you have? Do you have anything else on this?
1: Yeah, that's it. Oh God! there's there's so there's much way more that time talking about National Treasure than I thought we were gonna,
0: and is your day better for it?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Oh my God, what a fucking movie! Um, <laughs> all right, give me a rating and review.
1: Oh man, I totally just forgot, okay, I pulled up uh I mean, this is definitely a film that's not supposed to have some sort of deeper meaning or progressive message. It's a movie that you just sit back and just ride the wave. Enjoy yourself, have a good time, don't think too hard. It knows exactly what it is and has fun with it. Um, I'm giving this like a 3.5 out of 5 because I don't know what else I could give this. Like, it's about as enjoyable as you can get with like a guilty pleasure movie, and I feel like three and a half is like pretty much the peak for something that's only providing that. So, three and a half, fuck it.
0: Um, I, I'm going to give this a three. It's a, it's super fun. It's, it's, it is super fun. Uh, it is long. Um, which uh, it, it's going to lose some points for, for me on that. It's two hours and 11 minutes long. It is not short. No yeah. It, it's, it's a longer movie. Um, and I always think about it as the movie where Nick Cage steals the Declaration of Independence, but that happens so early on in the movie that it's basically like it's almost irrelevant. And like, and then they just treat it like the map. They don't treat it like the Declaration, so I'm constantly forgetting that like, oh yeah, that thing you're squirting lemon juice all over, that's the Declaration of Independence. It's um,
1: literally like the foundational piece of this country. Like,
0: which also there are multiple copies of, but okay. Yeah, they're not all the original. Yeah. Well, they they wrote several copies at the time in, in case any of them got lost during the Revolutionary War. Um, not that like all of them had maps on the back. <laughs> I would assume. Uh, well, I would assume none of them would have maps on the back.
1: <laughs> Imagine if like the map was actually there, and like they only had it on like the one original main copy or whatever. I don't know how they divvied it up, but like they just happened to have the one without it on display that day, and they're like, "Oh, back to square one because we found there's no map here." And, uh,
0: and see yeah. that would have been fucking funny if they stole multiple multiple declarations and just drew dicks on the back of all the ones they didn't they didn't need and then and then she, hand them over to Sean Bean. Sean Bean would put on his fucking X-ray specs, and be like, "It's just a bunch of dicks." He puts. Ben Franklin, the fucking, did you do this? He he goes sees a movie, takes
1: home the 3D glasses, like the paper 3D glasses they give him. Takes a look at the map. And it's just scribbled on there.
0: Statistically,
1: you're gonna die at some point in this movie, Sean Bean. Fuck you. Uh, I would.
0: I. am upset he didn't die.
1: Right. Like it's only arrested. A, it's such a well. You know, he could have Jeffrey Epstein himself in prison. You don't know. Uh, you mean be murdered? <laughs> yeah. You don't know what kind of money he tied himself up
0: to. <laughs> um, shall we move on to our, our our final feature film for the night? Yes, yes. The
1: the good one of the bunch.
0: Yeah. Um, let's talk about Platoon. Uh nineteen eighty six is Platoon, written and directed by, by Oliver Stone, starring Charlie Sheen, Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe um, and uh goddamn a whole bunch of people. Um everyone you you like is in this movie. Um, and everyone you don't like is also probably here. Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, um, yeah, that guy. Fuck that guy. Um, it had an estimated budget of $6 million at a cumulative worldwide gross of $138.5 million, a rousing success. The tagline for this film is The first casualty of war is innocence. Meh. Um, I think that's the best one we've had yet. Definitely the best one we have yet, but goddamn, the bar is so low. Uh, it won four Oscars, um, along with an additional four nominations. It won for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Sound, and Best Film Editing. It was nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Willem Dafoe, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Tom Berenger, Best Writing for Oliver Stone, and Best Cinematography for Robert Richardson.
1: Uh, Who huh. won Best P- or Best uh, Actor in a Supporting Role that year?
0: That is a great question. Let me pull it up for you and find out. Um, Leading role that year was Paul Newman. Supporting role was Michael Caine for Hannah and Her Sisters. Oh, fuck that. Baringer should have won. Well, Corbin, tell me your thoughts and feelings on 86's Platoon.
1: Uh, I can honestly say I've probably seen this movie well over a dozen times um this i think is one of the, the you know the best war films ever created uh and, you know in the idea that i think this does a significantly better job portraying the real conflicts a soldier faces uh in combat compared to you know a lot of other films where you know to an extent the The combat can be glorified. The camaraderie is really, uh, you know, celebrated. And they don't, they may touch on, you know, the mental, the mental struggles that, you know, the stress and pressure can put on, but they don't really dive into it too much. Uh, I think this, you know, it was made by, you know, Vietnam veterans, uh, both Oliver Stone and uh, Dale Dye and they really went out of their way you know every decision they made in this was was it honest to their experience in vietnam um and i i love this movie um i think it's beautifully shot beautifully acted uh you know i watched this a ton as a kid you know growing up like in my early teens and you know when you're that young and that gung-ho about, you know, the armed, you know, the armed forces and whatnot and learning about like military history, like you, you look at what you see and not, you know, any deeper than that, but like looking at the acting and watching, you know, Tom Berenger and Willem Dafoe and Charlie Sheen act in this and, you know, all the other minor characters that are just so perfectly portrayed as, you know, average 18 19 year old kids. Um I think it's perfect. I, I love this movie.
0: Uh, I I haven't seen this movie for many years. Um I think I've seen it literally one single time when I was like 16 or so. It definitely wasn't one of those Josh you're too young for those movies, but it was certainly around that age. Um And upon my second and most recent viewing, I didn't give a shit. Um, Part of it's I really hate Oliver Stone, the man. Um, I think he's a bad guy, and I hold many grudges against him for the disservice he did to the country for the movie JFK, um, because he used his platform to propagate uh, conspiracy theories. And like that's so fucked up. Um this is this is new to me. I
1: really haven't dug deep into Oliver Stone in any capacity. Have you uh, ever watched
0: JFK? No, I haven't. Part of the film is that he proposes and this film is supposed to be like a like a biopic. Um he proposes that um LBJ was part of the plot to assassinate JFK as part of a coup d'etat of the uh, United States government. Like it is a conspiracy theory riddled nutcase of a film. Um, and he propagated it as fact. And I've always resented him for this because God damn it. That's just such heavy handed bullshit. And uh, same with this. My problem with this film is I think it does a great job showing the horrors of war. But that can't be the only thing you do in the movie, because it's two hours of plotless nonsense that is just the horrors of war. And you can do two things in a movie. You can show me the horrors of war while also having a semblance of plot in a movie that this does not have. It shows moral quandaries, but they're presented so haphazardly and without anything leading into them or coming really as consequence of them, that they basically just don't matter. And that's wild. Uh, Like the fact that um, Tom Berenger kills Willem Dafoe, it didn't even matter. It's insane that it didn't even matter. Literally. Got him killed. Who? Berenger. He uh, literally no, I mean,
1: killed at the end of the movie because of that. I know, but in the grand scheme of things, like, uh, In God, the grand scheme I, of things, he could have kept living, but he didn't because he died. He was killed by one of his own men for killing another man.
0: And but 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 what I'm what I'm saying is I I I get that I get that it was I get that it was a horrors of war thing he was put in a position where he saw someone do wrong and knew he was going to get away with it and he had been fucked up as a result of the entire hour and 50 minutes of film that took place before this and made what was a morally questionable call that he believed to be based in in what was correct but oh my god like i just don't give a shit you're a bad guy he's a bad guy the vietnam war is bad i get it and this is a great movie for 1986 i think it's a great movie for 1986 because that message was still fresh there's 10,000 movies made about the Vietnam War. All of them show the heart. All of them show moral quandaries. Most of them have actual plots. And I just didn't give a shit about Char- Charlie, K- Charlie Sheen's whiny ass character. Everyone playing a radically bizarre stereotype. The black characters in this film are portrayed super poorly. Like, wow. Um, it is very, very bizarre the choices Oliver Stone made with the black characters in this film. In what way? Um, man, he betrayed them as cowards and and wusses and every and lazy and just poorly. They they did nothing so, but whine. They never had heroic moments. They were. So
1: I'm gonna stop you there because. The way they shot this film was um are you, do you know who Dale Die is? He I plays the do company not. commander, um the guy who's in charge of like the the battalion at by the end of the The movie. one
0: that, that calls the, the 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 squad in or the, uh, the the airstrike in at the end?
1: Yeah. That's Dale Dye. He uh he served in Vietnam, you know, for like four or five tours. He basically was running a consulting company where he would train actors for war films and Oliver North, uh, Oliver Stone, sorry. Uh, (laughs) this would be a great movie. if Oliver (laughs) North directed it. Oh my God. Um, um, so basically he brings Dale die in to be a, the consultant for this movie. And what they do is they put all of the actors through a 30 day basic training course where they, go out and live in the bush for 30 days functioning as a platoon, you know, as a group of soldiers with, you know, Berenger and um, Willem Dafoe as like the NCOs, the sergeants, they have the officers act like officers, you know, with the responsibilities and all that as officers with Dale Dye just kind of overseeing everything. And, you know, them giving like little directions for like what they'll need to do, just learning and, you know, they have everything be as real as possible so that they can understand what was going on. So, like, they're going through this movie, and they want this to be as realistic as possible. So, you know, you know, just for reference, like, their packs are full with what they would be carrying around normally, what they'd be sleeping with. All of the weapons and ammunition that they carry are fully loaded with blanks. So they're carrying a the full supply that grunt in vietnam would carry and part of how they wanted to film it was it wasn't there wasn't much of a script you know there were lines that like oliver stone wanted to include and oh it is clear there was no script what's up
0: oh it was clear there was no script
1: (sighs) get the fuck out of here but like these actor portrayals you're complaining about like those are just the actors and how they were like that was up to them for significantly more you know they had significantly more freedom to act as themselves than a typical film you know like charlie sheen's character like there were some basic principles that you know he's following you know to envelop this the character that you know was written as the main character for the story but for you know by all means. It's just Charlie Sheen being Charlie Sheen and how he thinks he would have been. Like, it wasn't, here's your lines. This is how I want you to feel in this situation. This is, you know, the the emotions I want you to kind of put yourself through. Go do it. It's like, all right, this is what's going on at this point. Go. So, like, you can talk shit about, you know, Oliver Stone, you know, Shortchanged all of like the minority characters in this film, you know, like cowards, whatnot. But it's like, yeah, there might have been some direction there, but for the most part, those are just, you know, Farce Whitaker and the other guys who names I don't remember. Um, Uh, Keith
0: David's one of them, I forget who the other guy is.
1: David, uh, it's like Robinson, I think. uh, Yo, Keith, seeing Keith
0: David this young is disorienting.
1: See, it's weird because this is how I know Keith David. Like, this is it. Like, when I see Keith David in anything else, it's like, wow, Keith David's old or whatever. It's like, oh, man, Platoon is what I think of him as.
0: I don't know what I think of Keith David from. Most recently, I think of Keith David from Rick and Morty, but that's not representative of who he is as an actor. Uh man, I I I can understand certain aspects of that and I'm sure by and large the dialogue is improvised because again it certainly felt like it. Um but the portrayal is the portrayal um uh, although I can certainly understand your defense of it. Um Like I don't really have a lot of notes here. I I I just Every scene of interest was relatively speaking the same moral quandary of what side of this war do I want to be on? And how am I going to handle the local populace? Which, again, which I also don't think is handled very well at all, especially in juxtaposition to a film we did previously, Good Morning Vietnam, where they treated them like people, and this one they treated them like cattle. Again, that was part of the point of the movie. So I'm hard-pressed to discount them on that too harshly. Because, again, that was part of the point of the movie. Is that there were soldiers in Vietnam who did not treat the local populace well. Um, But... When every part of the film is the same question, I just am like, I got it. I get it i understand like this is a bad place you're doing bad things your squad is or platoon it's literally the name of the movie josh um <laughs> your platoon is like divided upon their views of what's right and what's wrong and i got it um and then I'm sorry to bring this up, but I'm I I I I think you might be mad at me. The scene where Willem Dafoe actually does die, I laughed out loud. It's so bad. Eh, no, it's comical. Like yeah,
1: like it's something that's been played up over the years and like made fun of, but like
0: Tropic Thunder, most famously.
1: Yeah, like it's it's pretty cheesy compared to everything else in this.
0: I and like I get the point. Like they were trying to show he's alive. And then have him die anyway, so that he still he can be shown as alive, but still incapable of telling his story that says Berenger shot him. But it's like, oh my god, this is so bad. <laughs> like, oh my and that's and that's what I'm trying to say about the movie. It's not subtle in what it's trying to say. It's very heavy handed. Gosh, we just and finished I, talking
1: about a movie that's so subtle you don't understand what's going on in it. It's not always like the cream of the crop, creme de la creme, like, subtlety has its place.
0: I'm I'm not trying to say I think this is a bad movie because I don't think it is. And I don't want that to be the takeaway from my discussion of it. My my thing is just that, like, I find it hard, especially as someone who's not as much of a war movie person as you are, because this is your wheelhouse right here your and this era especially is like your your feel um it but for me personally single setting environment vietnam the general outdoors of vietnam the same characters the, the whole movie which you know it's a war movie that's going to happen they can't go to like a town um and that's fine by by for most for the most part, like you really only focus on a few characters in a film anyway. Um, but it's almost monotonous because of how similar the feeling of the of the scenes are to each other, because it continuously is asking you the same question and continuously presenting you with different scenarios that have the same principle behind them and I've seen the horrors of war movies. I've seen the moral quandary movies. I wanted more than that. And I don't think I got it, especially through John C. McGinley's bizarre accent.
1: Yeah, I mean, John C. McGinley is not exactly someone I would describe as a good actor.
0: I couldn't stop seeing Dr. Cox, too.
1: Yeah, like it's it's impossible. Like it it would be hard. It's like seeing if like Turk was in it. Like it. I don't know. I just feel like you're shortchanging the complexity and depth of The Horrors of War. Like you're you're viewing it as like a singular plot line when there's so many different layers to it that you can explore throughout a movie. You know, like you like Good Morning Vietnam, it's like oh the horrors of war and then, you know, the the mental battles of being overseas, whatever, like, oh, and, like, a romance aspect, this, that. It's, like, that doesn't always fit, you know. You lose focus when you try to do too many things. And, yeah, I get, you know, you might want to have, like, a second piece to it. But I think there's enough focus on the, like the tagline says, like, the loss of innocence, going into this this environment for the first time and you know, seeing how different people react to this stress and this, you know, the pressures that are put upon you. And, um, you know, you have to choose how you're gonna, how you're gonna face it, how you're gonna react to it. Um, and you know, the moral compass that you have, and that's why i love this movie because it's it is focused on that one that one premise and it just dives into it and i just i love the way like where it takes you how it takes you you know like uh i've seen this movie so many times i i downloaded you know a 4k version to see what it would look like and it ended up being solely Like director commentary with Oliver North or Dale Dye. There was like two different audio tracks. So I watched this movie with, you know, audio commentary from Dale Dye over, you know, the vast majority of the movie and learned a lot. And like to what you were saying about the way, you know, roughly half the platoon treated the Vietnamese civilians was, you know, he was talking about it and he was like, look, like I, I, can't avoid the fact that this was something that both oliver and i saw extensively while we were serving like this is this wasn't you know one of those things where it's like all right there's a handful of of bad apples here you know that just happened to caught on on tape or whatever and you know that the media blew it out of proportion you know he was like yeah this was this was a pretty kind thing like these are the kind of things you know like shooting civilians torturing civilians you know shooting the ground in front of them, making them dance. That's, it's the way it was. And, you know, it, like I said earlier, like they had this idea that they didn't want to put anything into this film. That wasn't something that they experienced or something they saw. Um, and that realism to it is probably the biggest factor for what makes this like a special movie for me. And, you know, it's, it's, I just think, you know, at the end of the day, like, I just think there's so much depth to the horrors of war, you know. I mean, my favorite film is Apocalypse Now. I'm not going to sit here and say that doesn't dive deeper into it than Platoon. But at the same time, I still think this does a very good job with, you know, something that, by all means, I think is very well directed in the premise and very well acted by the principal actors.
0: I, I was also going to compare it to Apocalypse Now, so I'm glad you brought it up. Because um, my whole point with, with the plot thing is that Apocalypse Now guides you through so many aspects of war and how it's being experienced by such a diverse group of the people that you would encounter and how um, Martin Sheen gets to experience it through his lens as someone who's who, who is... Undertaking this massive venture and seeing lots of different, lot of different parts of the territory, and I, I think it's it's such an interesting job, and it handles so many aspects and gives them all their own reverence. I don't think this does. Like you really see through different stages and different lenses, all of these different aspects, and through this again, it's it's the same question so often and again it's not that it's a bad question it's not that it's a question that shouldn't be worth asking that it's not worth asking and it's not that it's presented in an uninteresting way like this is a good movie but it's very singular in its view
1: and my argument is that's fine that's okay
0: okay yeah yeah, okay. Um a couple interesting facts as I'm perusing facts about the film. Um uh Oliver Stone wrote the film for um Jim Morrison of the Doors to play uh Charlie Sheen's character. Uh and apparently Jim Morrison had a copy of it on him when he died, which is crazy. Wow. Um could not picture Jim what Morrison. What year did him. he die? 1971. Oh wow. Well. Yeah, so which is crazy because this movie this. was made, yeah, 15 years. <laughs> Um, which is wild. Uh, Charlie Sheen, his older brother, Emilio Estevez, was originally offered the part that Charlie Sheen took, but uh, uh, turned it, or no, um, the project fell apart, the movie fell apart due to financial problems. And then eventually, when the film budget came together, Estevez was tied to other projects, so Charlie Sheen came in um, after all. Which is pretty interesting. So, uh, a whole thing happened there. Uh, I'm going to bring this up only because I mentioned a point relating to it previously. The film uh, is banned in Vietnam because of its depiction of the Vietnamese people. Um, it's also banned in Malaysia for ex- ex- excessive profanity and violence, although that seems completely unrelated.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's a Malaysia issue.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, that's okay. <laughs> Super random, um, <laughs> yeah. I think that's the most thing. Um, uh, another interesting point, only because I'm fascinated by these things. Apparently, Tom Berenger, up until this film, was typically cast as good guys, whereas Willem Dafoe was typically cast as bad guys. So Stone cast them opposite of their typical typecast, um, which I always find fat. Like it's the like you ever seen Naked Gun? Yeah. Um Leslie Nielsen. One, one or two and a half. Uh 33 and a third, actually. <laughs> um Leslie Nielsen, who like, you know, from Airplane and from Naked Gun, really? the fucking goofball. Who, he was a serious actor up until that point. And he was um his public persona was changed so dramatically after being an airplane that he like he just never did dramas again. He got typecast as being a goofball. Um so I find this type of stuff very interesting. I what do I what do I know Tom Berenger from? That I like, do you when you think of these two actors? What do you think of?
1: Uh, when I see Tom Berenger, I think of this movie. When I see Charlie Sheen,
0: no, Willem Dafoe. This movie,
1: I, I think of Spider Man.
0: I knew you were going to say Spider Man.
1: <laughs> I mean, that movie came out like when I was so young and so you know spongy in god what's the right term for that uh
0: i i think he didn't take a a bad way yeah i i think i think that was a fine term
1: (laughs) um yeah it's just it's so clear of him being the green goblin
0: if you had asked me this question three years ago i would also say spider-man but most recently i think of him um from the florida project
1: um, I actually see a piece of trivia here that I was planning on bringing up and forgot about. This is actually part of a trilogy. Really? Uh, that Oliver Stone directed. Heaven and Earth, Born on the Fourth of July, and Platoon. It's not like direct over, like it's not an arcing storyline. Part of the
0: same universe, kind of? It's,
1: yeah, it's the universe of like going to war, coming home, all of that. And, like, Heaven and Earth was, like, the Vietnamese side of it.
0: Right. I uh... They
1: actually really wanted to... Dale Dye was trying to convince Oliver North to make, you know, Born on the Fourth of July that style of movie with the characters from Platoon to see how it directly impacted them coming home. And I think that would have been really cool.
0: I know I've seen Borden on the 4th of July. Uh, I don't recall it in the slightest.
1: Um, Tom Cruise goes to war, loses his legs, and then...
0: That's literally all I remember of the movie. I remember remember wheelchair Tom, Tom Cruise. That's all I remember.
1: Fair enough. Fair
0: enough. Well, that is interesting, though. Um, All right, Corwin, give me a final rating review.
1: Uh I think my opinions of this are known by now. I also just don't feel like repeating myself. I give this a four and a half out of five
0: all right um despite how much I shit upon it, as Corin and I have said in other podcasts um it's much easier to talk about things that you don't like about movies because those are discussion points. Mm -hmm. It's much harder to continuously talk about the things you like about movies because then you're just sitting there jerking each other off about how good a movie was. So despite the fact that I spent most of this discussion bringing up the negative points, this is still a good movie. Um, I'm going to give it a three and a half. I think that's just emotionally where I stand on it.
1: That's fair. I... I you know, I get what, like, I understand why you don't like certain aspects of the film. Three and a half coming from that, uh, I'm all about it.
0: I am going to be controversial and say Tom Berenger is the best part of this movie.
1: Uh, that, yeah, it's a given. Is it really? I love, I love Tom Berenger in this movie. Absolutely the best part. We just were talking about how I think he should have won the uh, Best Supporting Actor.
0: Oh, you know what? You're right. I forgot he was running for that. That's not a controversial take at all, then.
1: All right, cool. <laughs> uh, uh, this is you know, this is Tom Beringer's I, I was going to say his best film. I don't really think that's up for debate. He hasn't really been in a whole lot of hard-hitting, great stuff. Um, but yeah, I love his character in this. When the machine breaks down, we break down.
0: Yeah. Right yeah,
1: on. It's my Tom Berenger
0: i I got it only because you told me who uh, all enough. right, Corwin, tell me, um what is or am I picking a number, right? Is that are, what
1: we're doing? Absolutely picking a number. We're gonna do this until I run out of movies on this list.
0: All right. <laughs> I'm gonna go number eight eight. ooh, sorry
1: to bother you.
0: Uh, <sighs> all right.
1: Not a fan of that movie.
0: Uh, well, I guess it's going to be uh, worth the, or I guess I'll have to, have to find out upon a second watch. But uh
1: man, I haven't seen it yet, so maybe. If
0: if you didn't like the Holy Mountain, I don't think you're going to like this. Really, it's All uh, right. it's a movie. I I'll, I guarantee you that. Um,
1: maybe because yeah. it's you know. I can see it in like 1080p or 4K if I'm lucky. I might like it more because it, it looks prettier, and that has more of an effect on how I think of movies. than I'd care to admit, but we'll see. We'll find out.
0: I uh, I pray for you. I um haven't really put. I did it again, Corwin. I didn't think of a movie. Um, so I Pick think a number. I, I think no, no, no. I think this time I'm going to go with an actor. And go uh, pick one of his movies. And I'm going to pick mm, oh, the great debate between a movie I've seen already and a movie from him I haven't seen already. Um, I'll go haven't seen. I'm going to go with 1997's The Boxer starring Daniel Day-Lewis.
1: All right. Haven't seen him. What was the other choice?
0: Um, I was between that and my left foot. Ah. Uh. I was also yes, debating between picking a Daniel Day Lewis film and picking National Treasure Two.
1: <laughs> I was fully expecting you to pick National Treasure Two. I fully, so fully expecting
0: the the full scope of films that I was debating was my left foot, the boxer, National Treasure Two, and El Topo, um, <laughs> Alejandro Jodorowsky's film, right before Holy Mountain. <laughs> but I figured you could use a break
1: yeah thank you. Thank you.
0: I am a generous god uh, <laughs> <laughs> any anyway um all right, Corwin. any final thoughts before we dip out of here?
1: I just you know we disagreed on like the two big movies that we watch this week and the one we found common ground on was fucking nick cage national treasure i just i like that i like that a lot
0: i mean he nick cage has done what neither political party has been able to and has brought true americans together over one united cause (laughs) trying to find the knights templar freemason and u.s president's treasure
1: Uh, I really want like an Assassin's Creed game now where the main character is modern day Nick Cage figuring out he's like one of the Knights Templar or whatever. God, (laughs) I I just
0: wanted to see what they make because they're making a third one and I just need to know what it's about. I don't even, I don't, I don't need to know anything else right now. Just tell me the plot. Because I couldn't even fathom what it might be. Like The uh, plot of the first one is to find treasure. The plot of the second one is to prove that his great-great-great-grandfather wasn't a traitor to the United States. And then, like, what is the third one about? Oh, man, I gotta know.
1: This what else is did a they series find? where I fully expected like when this news broke, I was like, You mean you're telling me that there wasn't already a third one made that was so bad society just kind of cast it from its collective memory? I fully thought a third movie came out already, and we just Go- all chose not to acknowledge it.
0: Same! When I saw that there was three, when I did my Google, I was like, Oh yeah, of course there's three. <laughs>
1: Wild I was like, ben yes. The that.
0: third one came out like three or four years ago, and I just never, never got around to it.
1: Oh. And I was shocked that it was in production. Yeah. I I do not have high hopes for this, though.
0: I do. <laughs> That's the thing. My my hopes are that it beats out the craziness of the first two. I am Team Chaos when it comes to Nick Cage films in general. I hope.
1: You know? I hope it. Like comes down to the fact that Nick Cage has kind of gone off the deep end, and is just really into like meth now.
0: Maybe, maybe it does a Jacob's Ladder situation. And um, the first two movies were a dream.
1: I don't understand that reference, but I think I kind of get what you're getting at.
0: All right. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. then uh, we'll get on out of here. Uh, by the time you're hearing this, it'll be Thursday. It means it's opening day, praying for no rain. Um, let's go Yanks. But in general, thank God baseball is back. Uh, oh, also, fuck the Red Sox. Moogie Betts signed an extension in, in Los Angeles. We'll talk about it later, but if you're a Red Sox fan, fuck you. Suck a dick. He ain't coming back. He don't like you. Fuck you. Eat it. Alright, that's it.
1: <laughs> I um, already miss the Pittsburgh Blue Jays.
0: I cannot wait for their existence and immediate departure.
1: Oh uh, the Pittsburgh already announced that they're not allowed to play at PNC. City what? Of Pittsburgh. Yeah.
0: What no
1: Yeah. I was pretty bummed.
0: Oh, I didn't see that. That made me sad.
1: That makes me very sad.
0: Fuck. Alright, I'll find something else to look forward to um, Maybe the fact that Mookie Betts ain't in the Red Sox anymore Suck a dick It definitely um, won't
1: be the Pirates Hopefully having a good season Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh. Oh. Uh, Alright, if you want to follow the show on Twitter You can do so at JuicingPod You want to hit us up Via email, you can do so at JuicingTheNumbers At gmail.com And until Monday Y'all have a good one